life brings many things our direction. And because so many different aspects, so many different realities, so many different situations are coming at us, uh, quite often we can be overwhelmed by fear. And I want to start this morning by asking, what are you afraid of? What is it that frightens you? What is it that holds you back in life? Um, to do that, I wanted to uh, bring up a couple of phobias, well-known phobias, and see if maybe this applies to you. Uh, the first is arachnophobia, which would be the fear of spiders. Anybody got that fear? Yeah? All right. No? That doesn't bother somebody? How about uh, ophidophobia? Ophidiophobia. i get it right here in a minute. The fear of snakes. Yeah? All right. A few more there. All right. Uh, uh, acrophobia, the fear of heights. They got that? Yeah. All right. Uh, trip, trypanophobia, the fear of injections. You don't like shots. Yeah, all right. See a few of you back there. The glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. I have that one. <laughs> all right, a few of you. Okay, let's go a little bit different here in terms of those phobias. How about porphyrophobia, which is the fear of the color purple? Anybody got that? No. No, probably not. How about uh, levophobia, fear of objects on the left side of the body? Okay. Or its opposite, dextrophobia, fear of objects on the right side of the body. Okay. Odontophobia, fear of teeth. <laughs> I don't know how you would function with that fear of it. Um, and then, of course, there's phobophobia, which is the fear of fear. Some of these fears seem, at least to me, quite rational. There are things in your life, there are things in your uh, that you confront, that you encounter, that you should have a fear of. That's what keeps you safe. Okay, you see a rattlesnake there? You should be afraid of that rattlesnake. All right, or... Uh, I guess rattlesnakes aren't quite as common in this area as they are where I grew up. Uh, what are the snakes that are out here? Copperheads? Yeah, yeah, all right. There are things we should be afraid of, but there are also things that we're afraid of that we really shouldn't be. The fear of the color purple doesn't make any sense to me at all, okay? Because I like purple. But even beyond that, living our life for Christ, trying to walk with convictions, trying to share our faith. A lot of times, the number one cause of us stopping and not really succeeding in that is fear. Something kicks in, some doubts, some concerns, some insight perhaps that we have, and we fail to carry through. And I want to address that this morning as we continue our look at being a disciple and exactly what that looks like and what that means. I want, I want to deal with the issue of confronting our fear and, and dealing with the calling that God has given us. And to do that, I want us to turn to 2 Timothy. This is Paul's last letter. He seems to be very much at death's uh, doorstep as he's composing this letter, uh, writing to his... Uh, his disciple, his young friend who has ministered with him and walked with him. He's trying to encourage him in his ministry. And as Paul offers these words of encouragement, he says some things that 
I think should resonate with us. And it all really begins in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So if you're experiencing that fear in terms of carrying out your ministry, in terms of being a disciple and, and walking in the way you should, that's not from God. That's something that's born inside us, inside of our fallen nature that, that persists and that, that we struggle with, that we fight against. It's something that perhaps comes from outside sources, but it's not from God. And when you start talking about how you respond to that fear, a lot of times we'll, we'll turn to Joshua 1 like we did a few weeks ago. Be strong and courageous. Have courage to face those fears. Just overcome it. But that's not where Paul goes. Paul does not contrast courage and fear here. Paul contrasts fear with the resources we have. And he essentially outlines two different types of resources. The first is the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of God. presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is something that is important and significant. And we're going to be looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit beginning next week for uh, for about three weeks in Romans chapter 8. How does the Holy Spirit minister to us? What is the Holy Spirit's role in our life? But today I want to look at the, the second part of what Paul has to say here, and that is self-discipline. He says he, he contrasts fear with power and love from the Holy Spirit, but also what? With self-discipline. That is something that we can carry out, something that we can involve ourselves in, something that we can participate in in this walk, in this journey of faith. And as you go further into 2 Timothy, you begin to see what Paul means by self-discipline. And especially in chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, you see Paul describe what he means by self-discipline. What is the self-control, the self-discipline that, that we find expressed as a part of our walk in our ministry. He says in verse 22, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that the, they bring quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, by God, to do his will. Paul's instructions concerning self-discipline, self-control, really amount to Two instructions here. Flee and pursue. And both of those aspects need to be a part of our life, part of our experience. If we're going to move past our fear, if we're going to move past those things that would constrain us to be active in God's ministry and work in our own lives. First, he says to flee. And what does he say to flee? He says to flee youthful passion. What does he mean by youthful passions? 
Well, he, he doesn't really have in mind in this particular context, you know, passions that we often think of in terms of lust and those sorts of things. That, that's not really his focus here. Those would certainly be involved, and, and those would certainly be a part of our response to our walk with God in terms of what we run away from and in terms of what we avoid. But what he has in mind here is, is more of a, a relational wisdom. It, it's, a, it's an insight to, to recognize how we interact with each other. He goes on to highlight these by saying, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies and so forth. That, that's an explanation of the youthful passions that he's highlighting. So what are youthful passions? Well, youthful passions is relishing a fight. Okay. It, it's that mindset that says, I want to argue with people. I, I, I want to engage people in, in arguments. I want to engage people in terms of, of things that, that we can debate over. And I really have, in my experience, I'm sure it's happened at some point in history. God is a great God and He can work through any number of things. But I've never really seen someone convinced or brought to the Lord through engaging them in debate. I've just never seen it. I've seen them respond to rational arguments. I've seen them respond to, uh, uh, you know, uh, evidence that's presented. So I'm not talking about not being uh, concerned with apologetics. What I'm talking about here is is where we get in someone's face and, and we tell them how wrong they are or how sinful they are or whatever it is that, that it is that we're engaging in. We're, we're relishing that fight. We're pushed by that. The need to be right, maybe even prophetic, as we might label it, are youthful passions. We relish in telling people how they're wrong. Basically, it's correction absent comfort. It's chastisement without love. It's judgment without guidance. James characterizes it in chapter 1 of his letter, verse 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think sometimes we forget that. We develop a mindset that says, I'm right, or, or I have you know, I have the, quote, power of God in me, and I, I have this mindset, and so I'm going to argue, or I'm going to present, or I'm going to mock, or I'm going to do things in such a way that, that shows people just how wrong they are. And James says that sort of interaction, that sort of conclusion, never produces the righteousness of God. Even if you're able to convince somebody they're wrong, it's not going to grow in the righteousness of God because you haven't done so through the lens of love. We need to be fleeing such mentalities, such mindsets. But when we run, we need to run in the right direction. We don't need to run in the direction of, of excusing our behavior or apologizing for being a believer. We don't need to run in that direction. We need to run in the right direction, else we slip into something worse, perhaps. When I was growing up in Arizona, as a teenager, I had I had two loves, baseball 
and golf. Loved those two sports. Played them basically all the way until I got into college. Every chance I got. And golf uh, in Arizona was especially uh, wonderful in the summer. Now, yes, it gets up to 110, 115. But what that means is nobody else is out there playing golf. And so you got to play really cheap. I mean, and for somebody in high school with no money, that was a gift. I mean, you could play, you could pay 10 bucks and play all day long. And I did quite often. But in August, in Arizona, we get what are called the monsoons. These are storms that come in in the afternoon. And they're pretty intense. Sometimes they involve dust storms. Sometimes they involve thunderstorms, lightning, and so forth. And, and they would come in, and they'd come in without a moment's notice. they just, boom, suddenly they're there. And quite often, you'd be out, I'd be out on the golf course when those would come in. And, and typically, when you see them coming in, you run for shelter. Well, one particular day I was out, and I really wasn't paying attention to the skies at all, and I was playing, and the, the storm got there, and so the rain was falling, and so I took off running, and I ran for the closest shelter I could find. It was an umbrella that was out there as part of the the uh, the golf course where you could just kind of, people like to recline and stuff out there. So they had these umbrellas all over the golf course. And I'm standing there underneath the umbrella, Relax that I'm out of the storm and out of the weather. And then I look, and I notice that the umbrella is aluminum. And I think to myself, not a bright move, Pierce. Okay. I had run from the storm, but I had run to a place which was essentially a lightning rod to stand under it. So often in our lives, we're fleeing from something. And we don't really think what we're fleeing to. And we end up in a place, we end up in a location that's worse than when we began. And so this is why Paul brings in the issue of not simply fleeing, but also pursuing. Where are we running to? What are we following after? And he gives us four terms here. Four things that we should be pursuing. He says, first of all, pursue righteousness. Now, in some of your translations, some, some renderings of this, you'll see that, that righteousness is really set off from the other three. Some, some translations, some interpreters believe that righteousness is the core. It, it's the, the number one element, and then the other three kind of define righteousness. And I will simply say that righteousness is indeed the centerpiece of our relationship with God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There he's communicating, he's relaying the, the, the heart of righteousness. And, and he's not just simply saying hunger as in, oh, you know, I'd like a little snack. He's talking about starving after righteousness. He's talking about that time, that situation where you, you just you want to devour it. That should be our mentality. when it comes to the reality of, of righteousness. We're told you are what you eat. 
our appetites determine our diet, but our diet determines our intake, and our intake determines our health. We need to see that not just on the physical realm. We need to see that in a spiritual realm. So what is righteousness? Well, first of all, righteousness is a lifestyle that distinguishes us as true Christians and invites opposition from the world. When you look at the fourth and the, the eighth Beatitudes, that list of, of what Jesus gives us during the Sermon on the Mount, if you combine the fourth and the eighth, you'd get something along these, this line. We are to hunger and to thirst after a kind of life that will cause some people to persecute us for our faith. So righteous, So righteousness is a lifestyle that distinguishes us as Christians and invites opposition. When it's present, you're going to experience opposition. Why? Because darkness does not like light. But as I pointed out before, make certain that the opposition you're encountering is not because you're a jerk. Okay? Too many times I, I see Christians talking about, you know, I'm suffering for the Lord and this person confronted me or they didn't like me because, man, I was standing up for Jesus. And I look at the situation, I look what they wrote or I look at what they said, and, and they weren't confronted because they were standing up for Jesus. It wasn't for righteousness that they were facing opposition. It was because they were being an awful human being. Righteousness is driven by a connection with God. It starts in the heart and changes a person from the inside out. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, you need to, we need to be reminded that, that the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, it was active. It was visible. It was something where you could say, man, look at that person's walk. They followed the law to the letter, and then some. I'm sure if you lived in, their, in that day and you looked at those individuals, you would say something along the lines of, man, I wish I had a walk like that. But what Jesus is communicating there is that it has to come from the heart. It's a transforming work that God does within us. That's where true righteousness resides. Yes, it is manifested sometimes in our actions. When it is present, our actions will be different. That is true. But it's within the heart. How do I know it's within the heart? Because Jesus says what? In chapter 6, verse 1, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Righteousness doesn't need to be seen by others but by God. It is our disposition toward Him. It is our relationship with Him. It's the demonstrable presence of God dwelling in the heart of the believer. The story is told of a father and son who left their home to travel into town, and the reason they went into town was to, was to meet an uncle that was coming to pay a visit. An uncle that... Neither one of them had ever met an uncle of the father. And as they were standing there in town, walking around and looking at all the various people trying to find this uncle, 
Suddenly the father says, that's him. That's my uncle. The son said, how can you possibly know that? You've never met him. He said, I noticed that walk, recognize that walk anywhere. He walks just like my dad. That's what our faith, that's what our righteousness, that's what our life should be like, that we walk just like our father so that people can see him and not glorify us, but glorify him. And how great, magnificent, merciful, gracious, and powerful that he is. This righteousness must be fed by faith. Trusting God enough to follow him even when we can't see the results or don't know where he's taking us. That's what faith is. God, I trust you with my life. I trust you with this experience. I trust you with this moment. I trust you with this decision, even though I can't see where this is all going to lead. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to do what you ask me to do. That sort of faith, it only grows out of, again, a relationship. A relationship that is driven by righteousness. And then love. Love is a verb. And I think sometimes we forget that. At its heart is an action, not a feeling. To see how someone, to, to, to treat somebody in such a way that it shows them that you're connected. That is what love is. It's a sacrificial act. It reveals God. It imparts grace. It brings healing. That's what love does. Perfect love, Scripture says elsewhere, says elsewhere cast out. Why? Because it helps people to see they're safe. That there is a place of belonging. And that place of belonging is described with the last of the words, peace. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Peace is both an element and a result of the rest of these instructions. Paul means a positional situation, a, a circumstance where we're standing. It's where we're secure despite the uncertainty and the confusion of the world. He also has in mind here, I think, a broader meaning contextually that talks about how we respond to those around us. Both of those together are, are very significant in terms of being a disciple. How do I live a life as a disciple? How do I develop discipline by fleeing those things that I know are damaging to my walk? Not confronting them, not trying to overcome them, fleeing, running away, and pursuing those things that enhance my relationship, righteousness, faith, love, peace. To pursue those things is to practice discipline, is to step outside of ourselves, is to step outside 
of our own capacities and to be something greater, something more. How do we do that? Number one, you, you got to know where you come from. You got to know where you come from. Who are your people? What's your ancestry? And I'm not talking about your physical ancestry here. I'm talking about your spiritual ancestry. When we read the scriptures, we read the stories. Why is so much of the Bible in narrative form? It's to help us to know where we come from, to know who we're connected with. It's to see God at work in the lives of people who have come before, people who fail just as we fail, people who are fragile and and emotional and um, irrational sometimes, just as we are, but people who God brought through a process and turned them from individuals who were fearful to people who walked with self-discipline. You look at Peter. Peter had a lot of things, but at least initially in his walk, I wouldn't say self-discipline was one of them. He was the epitome of impetuousness. Cutting off people's ears, jumping out of boats in the middle of lakes. Okay. But then you see him in Acts. And still not perfect. He still has those moments of failure there in Acts. But you also see this individual who engages the enemy and does so with rational thought, with reason, with clear exposition of who he is. When they command him no longer to preach in the name of Jesus, he says, you do what you think is right. You do whatever you think is necessary. But I must obey the word of God. Standing strong with conviction and clarity. To see that kind of transformation is to know that it's also possible with me. I can become, I am becoming more than I am through the power of God. So we know where we come from. We remember who is with us. Number two, who is with us? God is with us. And if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? We say that. We know it. Most of us can quote it. Until that moment where we're faced with an opposition or some struggle. And then suddenly that reality just leaves our brain. How big is your God? How present is your God? How powerful is your God? To begin to understand those things is to begin to walk with righteousness and faith and love and peace. Why? Because you can risk those behaviors. You can take chances with those behaviors. Every one of those is risky, as we noted. You're going to face opposition. It, it takes uh, You're taking a chance by living a life of sacrifice before somebody, that they'll abuse you or, or walk away from you or mistreat you or minimize you in some way. But with God with us, we can live that kind of life. 
have that kind of power. Third, nurture what you have. Feed it. Take care of it. Help it to grow. When you experience those successes, when you experience those moments when you're like, yes, that's, that's, that's what it means to follow God. And hopefully you, you are indeed experiencing those. When you, when you have those moments, feed those moments. Nurture those moments. Don't just dwell in them. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, don't just remember how good it was. You're moving forward. But feed them. Nurture them. Help them be a part of who you are. And fourth, draw on your resources. We'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead in terms as we focus on the Holy Spirit, but right here, and all of this together is, is Paul proclaiming that you've been given a spirit that's different. When you come to Christ, you have something you did not have before. Don't ignore that. Don't minimize that. Don't purposely walk away from that. Back in 1916, there was a woman named Hattie Green. You can look her up. She has she's quite a story in many ways. But Hattie was a sad demonstration of what it's like to really be living but not really experiencing life. When Hattie died, her estate was valued at between 100 and 200 million dollars. In today's money that'd be about 2 and a half billion dollars. And yet had he lived in poverty. She ate cold oatmeal because it cost money to heat it. When her son's leg became infected, she wouldn't get it treated. She tried to take him to a clinic for the poor cuz she didn't want to pay a doctor. And she waited so long that it ultimately had to be amputated. She died, in fact, arguing over the value of drinking skim milk. In the middle of an argument with her, with her maid over the value of skim milk, she experienced a stroke and died. She had, in today's thinking, two and a half billion dollars. She could have met every need she had and then some. She could have carried out all sorts of activities and tasks. She could have done so much. But she refused to draw on those resources. She preferred to live in poverty than to really make a difference. And as a believer here this morning, you have resources that far exceed hers. You have an all-powerful God who created all that is, who holds everything in His hands. You have brothers and sisters who are happy to, to pray for you to encourage you to walk with you. You have everything you need to really make a difference in this world. 
but for some reason we refuse to draw on those resources. Today, as we come to the time of, of invitation, I want to ask you, are you willing, really willing to do what we sang we were willing to do earlier? Are you really here? Are you ready to surrender? Because the ironic thing about the Christian faith is that it's in surrendering, it's in giving up that we find victory. It's in dying to ourselves that we find life. It's in giving ourselves to another that we find who we truly are. But it grows out of a challenge. It grows out of a response to say, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to draw on the resource that God has given me at this time in this place. This morning, would you commit to that? This morning, would you say, from here on out, I'm drawing on my resources. I'm going to walk in righteousness, in faith, in love, in peace. I'm going to pursue those things. I'm going to flee the things that, that don't need to be a part of who I am, and I'm going to pursue those things that do. If we're going to make a difference in this community, if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, it's got to begin with each one of us surrendering to his leadership and following wherever it is he takes us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for each person here. God, I pray firstly, if there's anyone here who's never surrendered their life, who's never given themselves to you, who's never experienced the relationship that you alone can grant, the peace, the joy, the hope, the fullness of life that you alone can bring into a life. If they've never experienced that, Lord, I pray that you would draw them in your power and that they would respond in faith. God, I pray for myself, my brothers and sisters here, that you would help us to truly begin to surrender. As we said We've said repeatedly we have. We've seen things like, I've decided to follow Jesus. And I surrender all. Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly do that here this morning. Use this time. Help us to be responsive to your way and your will. Whatever it is you're calling us to, Lord, whether it's uniting with this church, surrendering to ministry, committing to walk across the street and witness to a brother or sister that you've shown us. Whatever it is, Lord, help us to surrender. In Christ's name I pray.